As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realised it's not just the story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco. And you've just heard the advert for Page One. We're really excited because it's just launched Kickstarter it's a notebook to help you write. It's broken down into sections and as writers ourselves, we're really excited. I genuinely think it will help you improve your writing. So if you're at all interested, check it out. All the information's in the bio. Tell your friends, buy one for your friends, buy one for yourself, buy one for your cat, buy one for everybody. It's fantastic. Yeah, the risk of uh, flogging the cat <laughs> uh, it is, a, it is a product that we've designed because we are writers and we love writing and we thought it was something that would help us. And we really hope it will help you, so please do check it out. But anyway, to get on with the podcast, uh, this week we're speaking to a screenwriter, Sergio Cashi. He's the screenwriter of films such as The Caller and the soon-to-be-released The Lodge, which is a horror film which has been getting rave reviews at Sundance and various other festivals. Uh, we speak to Sergio about that in the podcast. We also speak to him about his earlier work, which includes a film that my uncle actually featured in. Uh, Sergio was unaware of that at the time, but uh, we, we discussed that as well. But anyway, it was an enjoyable chat we had with Sergio. Uh, it was over Skype, so um, the audio sometimes isn't as good as it could be, but we've cleaned it up as much as possible and uh, hope you enjoy listening. We'll be back at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's hear what Sergio had to say. What we're just going to do today is go through... I sort of sent you a very um, basic agenda last night. Yeah, I looked through that, um, and uh, that was very useful. Uh-huh. I got my notes with all the names. I forget who directed everything I ever wrote. I forget who starred <laughs> in it. I forget when it was made. I sometimes forget the titles of the films. <laughs> it's true. Because once it's gone, it's gone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I imagine... I mean, we'll get onto this in the main thing. Uh, but I imagine that you'll write something and then it'll be a while before it actually turns into something and you've moved on by that stage almost. Years years and years, years yeah, and years. But yeah. I've also got a really bad memory as well. <laughs> Which is why sometimes my lead character changes name halfway through the film and the producers think it's because I'm being terribly postmodern. In fact, it's not. It's just because, you know, I forgot what yeah, name I did and then I just found it. Another one was better. So, you know, it's a very big question, but how did you get started in screenwriting well when i was we i wanted to be a writer um but nobody around me was a writer we didn't know any writers um i'd never met one so the idea of doing it as a job seemed a wee bit pie in the sky but i also had the notion to be a journalist i had quite a romantic idea about being a a reporter probably from having seen all the president's men so after i left uni I did psychology at university, and after I left, I, um, I volunteered in a local community newspaper, and uh, and that led to a few other things, and eventually uh, I, I ended up at the BBC doing 
um, journalism. I was a journalist at BBC Scotland. And while I was there, I met a fantastic director called Don Coots, great uh, Scottish director. And he and I worked on a documentary about Scots Italians. Mm -hmm. It was based around, it was called Pesce Patate, which is about the Fish and Chip Festival in Badga in Tuscany, which you'll know all about. Yeah, I, I have to declare an interest because my, <laughs> my uncle's actually in that film, the, the documentary. Is he? Which one's he? What is he Is Loreno not in it? Loreno Rinaldi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is your uncle? Is my uncle, yeah. He's not. He is. Well, like I should have known by the, the, the good looks and the sparkling intelligence. <laughs> Loreno's your uncle. Loreno made that film. He was so, so good in it. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, funny and affectionate and articulate. And oh, it, was a, well, it was a lovely experience because we went over to Barga, Don Coots and I, and, uh, and you know, the crew. And we spent a, a week or two there making this documentary, which went out to the BBC. And we got on really well, Don and I. And it turned out that he wanted to... Um, he wanted to write a feature. He wanted to direct a feature film, and I wanted to write a feature film. So uh, um, we got together, and I and I wrote my first um, feature length script, and it was a sort of it was called Out of Season, and it was a sort of um, romantic comedy, come political thriller, come crime caper, which maybe tells you one of the reasons why it was never made. It was, <laughs> I managed to squeeze about seventeen different genres in a ninety minute film. We both loved it. We thought it was really good, but we couldn't get any. Dosh for it. Uh -huh. uh, so they would say to be, be a wee bit less um, ambitious and go to do a short film. So we made um, three short films and they all went really well. One was called uh, Dead Sea Reels, which starred the actor Ian Bannon, uh -huh. the Scottish actor Ian Bannon, playing a priest, a sort of mysterious priest. And then we made a uh, a comedy called St. Anthony's Day Off, which went back to the whole Scots-Italian thing. It was a bunch of Scots-Italians watching the 1994 World Cup. Mm -hmm. Only in our version, Roberto Baggio scores his penalty and Italy beat Brazil. Yeah, I, I, I remember, I've seen that. I remember seeing that. In fact, did Giancarlo, there's a lot of family interest here. Did yeah. my cousin not record commentary for that, for the made up penalty scoring? Was it him that I did that? I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. was it, I did not know that because I, I know him. I know him. I didn't know. Yeah. Him. Did you do that? That's amazing, bro. Anyway, it was a great <laughs> film, especially because we managed to change the result. Of exactly. What, yeah. You know, was the, it was funny though because um, I mean, for those who don't remember or know about football, the 1994 World Cup was, of course, won by Brazil on penalties against Italy. And in Maui film, we turned it around an Italy one. And the next day, my mum, who was a, a teacher. Uh, at the time, she went into the staff room and she overheard a couple of people arguing and one of them was saying, Italy won! I saw it in last night! Baggio <laughs> scored! The, and the other guy saying, look! I, so, so it caused a wee bit of uh, strife. The, you, you were doing the Donald Trump thing before Donald Trump. <laughs> Just been, make your I own news. fake news. <laughs> you, don't, you don't like the world? Change it! <laughs> so that was, and then we made another film called uh, Rose which was a, a, a great wee film, very scary wee film. And it was Rose, in fact, that inspired the later feature film, The Caller, because right. it was a sort of, uh, idea. And then I went on to do a bit of TV, and I did this and that, and we can talk about yeah. things as many want. So, I mean, so was it through Dawn that you were, because I suppose what people might want to know is, how did you, you've written a script, how did you get it in front of the right people to say, let's make this, let's show yeah. this on TV? Well, well, I was extremely lucky because I was in the BBC already, so you're in a massive broadcasting organisation and you're meeting people and you're seeing people and you're in contact with people who are doing lots of things. In this case, it was a documentary, but, you know, the BBC also makes 
drama. So I don't think the fact that I worked at the BBC gave me a particular in, in the sense that if the if the screenplay was mint, they'd have said it was mint. Mm. But it, it meant it was quite easy for me to make an appointment to see somebody and that kind of thing. And it also meant that I had contacts with people who, you know, had I been working in a chip shop, I wouldn't have necessarily got. So yeah. I was very fortunate. I was very lucky to be there at the time. And that was my first uh, foot through the door. Mm-hmm. And so was American Cousins your first full length American Cousins was my first full-length one. And what, what happened there was, uh, b- because of the whole Scots-Italian thing and because my heritage was very interesting to me, I, you know, I, I examined it in lots of ways in my fiction, I had this idea of an Italian family which immigrates. Half of them go to New Jersey and they end up as gangsters. Mm-hmm. And the other half go to Glasgow and end up frying fish, which I know is a terrible stereotype. But, you know, it was. I felt that as a Scots-Italian, I was allowed to play with stereotypes. Yeah. <laughs> my own kind. And... Um, it was tremendous fun. It was tremendous fun making it. And we had, we had, um, uh, what's his name? Um, Vincent Pastore from the Sopranos in yeah. it, you know, Big Pussy. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was funny because this is around 2000 or so, 1999, I probably started it. Oh no, probably even before that. But, but when it came out, the internet to me at least was quite a new thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, I didn't know its evil ways. And uh, I was in a wee office. I'd, I'd got myself a wee, I'd left the BBC at this point. Yeah. And I got myself a wee office in town. And uh, I wanted to put pictures of all the actors up on the wall. You see? And so I had my, I had my new internet machine and I typed in, oh, I couldn't remember his name. I couldn't remember Vincent Pastore's name. So I typed in uh, Big Pussy. Uh, no. <laughs> and that was my first introduction to the ways of the internet. <laughs> um, but and you didn't yeah, print out the picture. I printed, yeah, I printed out a picture of Vincent Pastore. <laughs> the other ones are now on a thumb thumb drive. <laughs> so is, is that something that's quite important to you then, writing what you know, that kind of area? No, I think that's not, I think that's mince. Write what you know. I don't think you should write what you know. I think you should write what you care about. I think you should write what interests you. Because if you're going to be writing a, a screenplay, it could take you months Definitely, years possibly, and then before it ever gets made, if it gets made, it could be several years. So if you're writing something just because you know about it, you might be bored to death by it at that point. If you write about something which interests you, which you're passionate about, you're much more likely to write something that interests other people as well, and you're much more likely to stick to it. So, you know, if you're passionate about about uh, you know extraterrestrial aliens, you know, how many people know about extraterrestrial aliens? They don't. You know, how many people know about tropical fish and you know but finding nemo was a great hit so writing what you know is i mean there's an element of truth to that but it's not the be all and end all i think far more important is write what you care about write what interests you write what you're passionate about because then you'll convey that and you'll stick with it Mm -hmm. but i think passion for something a genuine passion for something translates so i'm not interested in um french children's choirs but it was a great film of a french children's choir because the filmmakers were interested and passionate about it that translated i'm not particularly interested in things in in chess but you, there's, there's tremendous yeah. films of chess players which grip you and pull you in because you you piggyback the authors the writers directors um passion for it so I, th- I think write what you're interested in is much more useful it was for me than write what you know i think write what you know can mislead people you know and you get an awful lot of films about um students living in a shared flat <laughs> yeah or, or struggling writers or something struggling like writers are brilliant struggling writers <laughs> or, or or also you get enough because you know you do a lot of scripts and uh you do a lot of scripts about people who've always got a really 
pithy and witty thing to say to obnoxious people. You, you realise that the writer has just gone through writing all those things that they wish they'd said to folk. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I've done that myself, so, so hands up. And with, with American Cousins being a feature, how did that, what was the process? So you, you wrote the script. How did, how did that end up getting made? What was the process that you went well, through well, there? So, so Don Coots and I and the producer Margaret Matheson, once the, once we were happy with the script, she started uh, shopping it around and months and months and months passed and nothing happened. And uh, I later found out that she was a, the following day she was going to phone me and say, listen, we've done our best. I think we're going to have to drop it, move on to something else. But that day, a company in London, they, they had this, they had this, um, plan, this, whereby they would make something like six films every year at a certain budget, quite yeah. low budget, and six or seven. And one of their projects had just collapsed. And so they needed a seventh or a sixth to make up the numbers. And London turned around and said, right, quick, read a script. Has anybody read anything good? And somebody, <laughs> somebody had American Cousins in front of them and said, I've just read this. It's really good. And they said, right, fine, we're making it. And they phoned her. And as, literally the day before she was about to say to me, listen, we're giving up. They phoned her and said, we want your script after all. And she got in touch with me and said, they want it, they want it. So that was, you know, really? again, it was luck. It was pure yeah. luck. The one piece of advice, though, I mean, I think it's, it is luck. You, you can't get by without some luck. Mm-hmm. But it's like throwing darts at a dartboard. If you throw one dart, the chance of getting a, a, a bullseye are quite, well, depending who you are, but they're quite low. Yeah. If you throw 20 or 30 or 40, the chances go up exponentially. And... um and so for every successful thing that you have, for every piece of luck, you know, there's maybe five, 10, 15, which, you know, go in the bit, go in the bin. So, but, but there is luck involved. You have to have a wee bit. And did you, I suppose, staying on that, did you have other things before American Cousins in terms of features that you'd written and just didn't, either you weren't happy with them or they didn't go anywhere? In, in, in terms of features, I've been very lucky, uh, you know, you know, I don't know what the hit rate usually is for features, but my hit rate has been really quite good. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only one that I'd written and completed before that was Out of Season, which was my you know, romantic comedy, political thriller, crime keeper. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then American Cousins was the first one that I'd written after that. Yeah, so so that is... That is. Yeah, I don't want to say it's lucky. That sounds bad. But, you know, it, it is a very, yeah. very good... Well, no, no, it was ab- absolute, absolutely lucky. Mm-hmm. Absolutely and did you get to, as a, I suppose the other side of it is, once you've got your script picked up, which is awesome, and it's getting made into this film, did you have, were you on set? Did you go to the set? Did you? What was your involvement once it actually starts shooting? Um, my experience as a writer is that your involvement once it starts shooting is very, very negligible. Mm-hmm. Really negligible. In a sense, as a writer, you don't have a role on set. You know, I mean, Phil, Phil, somebody once described me, said to me that a film crew is like, is like perfectly benign fascism because you have the director who is all powerful and then everybody beneath the director knows their place exquisitely. You know, there's so many gradations and you always know who's in power at which point doing what. And, and it has to be thus on a film set. Yeah. The writer is, is out with that power structure because, you know, you know, you're not involved in the actual making of the film and yet you wrote the film and people don't quite know how to treat you. Should they ignore you? Should they be polite and different? And I think, in a sense, it's easier if you just don't go there, if you just stay away. I mean, personally, I think they should have the right there at all times asking us our uh, opinion about everything and obeying it to the letter, but 
that's maybe just me. <laughs> I understand why it doesn't happen that way. Why the why the writer doesn't have a role on set. Um, you know, Don was very with American Cousins. He was extremely um, open about you know asking for input and so on. But but he was very much the boss. That you you <laughs> you've not had that experience, I suppose, or maybe you have. But of you hear about writers that will write a script, it gets sent, it even gets put into production, but then they're actually sort of rewriting it on the day of shooting mm. and stuff like that. They're rewriting a scene, refixing a scene. You, yeah, you've well, not had that sort of involvement. I, ha- I did have that experience. Um, I, you know, and they, there were certain production things whereby they needed me to, to to write something quite quickly. I remember one one particular instance was um, they needed, uh, we wanted a sort of moment of, or Don wanted a moment of beauty. This is one of his, his things, mm-hmm. Director, and he says every film, no matter how grim or funny or whatever genre, it needs to have at least one moment of beauty. And he wanted to have a scene in Loch Lomond. Yeah. So they decided that they'd have two, um, they'd have two, what they call when you go sailing out and you're, what's it called? Like a yacht. No, no, no. Um, you stand on a board and there's a big. A kite surfing? No, just. Windsurfing, yeah, windsurfing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell we're all sportsmen. <laughs> so they wanted a couple of windsurfers, and Don said, "Well, let's get Serge and Helen. Helen's my wife. Let's get Serge and Helen. They'll do it. They're cheap." So we ended up in Jan. Jan. So, well, so the first thing I had to do is I had to write a, 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 a scene involving two windsurfers on Loch Lomond, and I wrote it. You know, it was like I get it done for tomorrow, kind of thing. Yeah. And then we had to ship out to Loch Lomond and film it. And it was freezing. It was the 6th of January. And uh, Helen had this big windsuit, or, you know, the, the wetsuit yeah. thing covering it. I only had trousers. I had to be naked from the waist up. Wait, were you playing the windsurfers? Yes, oh, yes. Okay. I was an extra. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, I was not an extra. I got a credit at the end as Sergio Cashi, stout windsurfer. <laughs> and Helen was svelte windsurfer. <laughs> But I got my own back on Dawn because uh, Margaret then phoned me again a while later. Said we need another quick scene, you know, just for, just to put it in the middle or something. And she said uh, we need we need the baddies to maybe beat up a security guard. And so I said okay. So I wrote a scene in which uh, the baddies beat up a security guard, tie him to a toilet, strip him naked, and tie him to a filthy toilet. And I said, oh, and by the way, see writing this. I kind of had Don in my head the whole time. <laughs> and so they did. They filmed, they stripped him naked and tied him to the toilet and filmed it. Unfortunately, it didn't make the final cut of the film. Surprising, because he probably shame. edited it. That's the power of being a director. But at least you get tied naked to a toilet. It's not often you get him to do that to your director. <laughs> and, then, and then after that, it, it went on to have some success, didn't it? It won, it won the BAFTA, I think. It, it, won, it won a heck of a lot of awards. It didn't win. Uh, I was nominated for a BAFTA. Nominated, sorry. I was nominated for a BAFTA and I didn't win, which is a horrible feeling no matter what anybody tells you. And it was funny, though, because we went down to London, Helen and I, and we were dressed up. She had a lovely dress. I had, you know, the bow tie and everything. And just as they're... Uh, and, you, and you're surrounded by... Because it's the proper BAFTAs yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, got, you've got Hollywood stars sitting in front of you and behind you and to the side of you. And uh, when it came to saying, you know, who the winner was, they had a camera on me and a camera on the other three people. They had a camera on me and a couple of people next to me, including my wife. Mm -hmm. And um, when they announced that 
somebody else had won. I, you know, as a, as a good broadcaster, smiled and clapped. You know, but, I'd been <laughs> but Helen, who didn't realise the camera was on us, mouthed an Anglo-Saxon word, <laughs> broadcast to the nation. So um, I'd love to find that piece of thought. Because I always yeah. kind of kind of wondered how much of a surprise it actually was on the night, or if if people knew in advance, or if it was just you right. found it with Absolutely. a camera in your face. You absolutely don't know in advance. And I'll tell you something that's absolutely genuine. When they announced that I hadn't won, the sense of relief was <laughs> overwhelming because Why? all they had been thinking about was having to walk up on stage and make a speech. And I, and I mean, I'd written down a few notes, but I couldn't, you know, I tried reading them. I couldn't remember them. I was, <laughs> I was dreading the idea of having to go up on the stage. So when they announced that I hadn't won, my first uh, reaction was relief. Bitterness, then, <laughs> bitterness, resentment, all manner of negative emotions. But at that moment, it was, you know, whew. Can you remember what beat you? Uh, I could, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I was up against the, because it was, it was the BAFTA for best newcomer. Right. It's best new, because it was my first feature mm-hmm. film. I was up against the, the girl with the pearl earring and another, I think, really big film and then a lesser known film I can't remember the way I could find out yeah, I could Google yeah, yeah. it um, but uh, I thought the girl with the pearl earring would win and then and then the other one won but at that point it doesn't matter because the bitterness is set in <laughs> yes it doesn't matter what it is <laughs> go home and you know I was going to say kick the cat but you better not um, and, and then uh, so after American Cousins uh, did you Try and stay in features, or obviously you've done some TV work as well. So what was the? Well, it, it was just it's just a case of making a living. Yeah. The thing about I mean, you know, if you make if you get a feature film made, you get a nice dollop of money, but you've maybe spent four, five, six years writing that feature film, so it's not a living. But luckily, ju- just after I left the BBC to go as a full time writer, River City started up. Mm-hmm. I went along there and I got a, a job. Um, you know, still freelance, but you know, I was writing regularly for River City for several years. So I always had project, other projects going. Like you know, I'd be working on a movie or a couple of movie ideas, and maybe a couple of children's ideas. But River City kept me going for for a while. Um, you know, after after I left the BBC. So. And is River City is something a program like River City is presumably not the idea of an American writers room as such, but you won't be structuring the whole thing yourself, presumably. No. No, no, that's right. What, what would happen is you'd all get together, a bunch of writers, maybe a dozen writers, and you would um, there would be a sort of broad conversation about where the, the storylines were going, and then you would be assigned a particular story document, which is maybe even just a page and a half, saying, you know, this is where you start, this is where you start the episode, this is where you finish the episode, this is what has to happen in the middle, and then, you know, how you get there is a little bit up to you, but... In fact, it's not up to you at all because then you do a second draft and they tell you to change it, and then you do a third draft, <laughs> change it, then you do a fourth draft and they tell you to change it, and then you might even do a fifth draft and see if you liked it better the first time. You know, there's an awful lot of yeah. backwards and forwards, but when you've got a, a a massive show like that with so many different actors and so many different story strands, and they're planning maybe months ahead, you know, something like if an actor falls ill 
or if you know you might have to then say right go back you know go back seven episodes and change such and such because we can't have him or her doing such and such so it's, it's it's a big technical job and you have to be able to you have to be able to spin on a dime as they say and, and just you know accept that your wonderful storyline isn't going anywhere because you know the act is pregnant and therefore you have to go back and change it and you just you just do it and is is that sort of writing still as enjoyable as writing your own stuff or does it feel more like a job i suppose it's, it's totally different i find that sometimes the first draft can feel like your own stuff because you're getting all all your 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 original thoughts and ideas and you, you know but by the time you come to the fourth or fifth draft it can be a little bit soul crushing you know um it's, it's a very different you're using different muscles when you're writing for soap than when you're writing your own stuff or writing for feature films and and you can get a real crafts person's satisfaction out of doing that you can get real thrill when something works but it can be incredibly frustrating especially when you have to make changes not for you know artistic reasons but for technical technical reasons and and you see you know it's not a case of strangling your darlings it's a case of somebody taking your darlings <laughs> up putting them to death you know, it's a different kind of feeling altogether is there a, is there a strange sort of freedom to that though in the sense that you don't need to worry about coming up with the idea you don't need to worry about sitting yeah. with kind of the place you're going to set it in you've got all the places in in yeah. play and you're just having to move them around a little bit yeah yeah and i yes that's absolutely right and i quite enjoyed it because one of the things i like best is dialogue i like di- you know i enjoy writing dialogue um and if you've got the rough story structure and you know where you have to start and where you have to end that does mean okay i'll just concentrate on the fun bits mm. which are you know making people say funny clever sad angry things and you know and and also there's a real satisfaction if the if the producer wants something to happen if you can make it happen in a particularly clever or interesting way, you get a, a thrill out of that, you know? And the other thing is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people are watching it. You yeah, know, yeah. Any, any small fame I have ever had has come basically from writing River City, you know? Um, not from, you know, you, you make a feature film that's seen by very few people unless it's Tom Cruise. You know, you write River City, um, the whole street knows the next day what you did to, you know, wee Bob or... Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. I suppose the other question that people listening might be interested in is you... How, how did you get the River City job? How do, you, how do you pick up this sort of ongoing work as a writer to make a living while you're doing your feature films on the side sort yeah. of a thing? You've got to remember that, the, 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 you know, the environment... We're talking about 20 years ago. When, when this happened and the environment today is very different in lots and lots of different ways. Um, so um, the way, the way I got involved was I'd, I'd already written my short films and they'd done quite well and they'd won a few awards. And so, and so I was known as a writer who could, you know, who had done some nice work. Um, and, I was invited along to have a chat with um I can't remember if he was the executive producer or, or something like that a uh, very nice chap and uh, and we talked and he said tell me the kind of tell me your thoughts about about writing continuing drama that's the fancy name you're not allowed to call it soap when you're talking right, about okay. continuing drama but among us we'll call it soap and and I read, well, he liked one thing which I said which was I said that when you're writing a story dated you know the day-to-day story everything should be kept as small as possible because um in, in a soap when you're very intimate with people and you're very involved in their lives somebody not getting a job can be devastating and it can be a fantastic piece of drama and the problem starts when you have this sort of um the stakes are getting you know a season 
after season and, and episode after episode and they're running out of storylines, people start building the drama to the extent that instead of somebody losing a job, it's somebody losing a leg or it's somebody getting run over or somebody getting murdered. And, you, and, and, and there's this tendency in all soaps, I think, to to inflate, you know, it's a sort of inflation of drama. And so by the end, aliens are invading and nuclear bombs are blowing up shootings. Well, that didn't happen to River City because, you know, because they, they, they knew that they had to keep it keep it small. And if you keep it small, that means that when you do go big, say for the Christmas special, and somebody does die or somebody does have an affair, it, it really affects the audience. And then you can quite naturally go back to normal life for the next season kind of thing. Um, but if you go in too big and too hard, too often, you have this inflation and it ends up becoming absurd. I mean, there's someone, was it was it Dallas or Dynasty where, where actually aliens did invade? Yeah, I think, Mar- I, I, can't, I think it was Dynasty, in fact. I Dynasty. think that's right. And Dallas had the, the whole... Uh, the GR in the shower. Uh, yeah, Bobby Ewing. Bobby Ewing. Yeah, 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 Bobby Ewing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and anyway, we discussed this. And I sorry, to come back to the point about how I got the gig, I remember using an analogy and he really liked it the, the producer chap really liked it and it was an analogy with newspapers which is like you've got paper like the times um with something really dramatic happens like the government falls what size type do you use for the headline well you don't use the biggest type because although the government may have fallen we've not gone to war because the next day we go to war what size type do you use for that and if and if we're in, you know so you, ha- you have to always remember that that the bigger you, once you go big, it's very hard to go back. So yeah. it's on an intimate human level, and and you can really exploit the drama. And he liked me saying that, and he thought I had the right attitude. So he said, "Well, we'll give you a, you know, we'll give you a script and see how you do." So I wrote it. They liked it, and then for a few years after that, I was a regular. And then the next was the next feature film, The Caller. Was that the, or did you do anything in between? No. So I had American Cousins, and then I did a feature film called Man Dancing right. with. Another fantastic Scottish director, Norman Stone, based on a story that he had written. It was a sort of modern day Easter tale set in, you know, a Glasgow scheme. It was a sort of crime drama kind of thing. Um, which, which again was, was, um, really good fun to do. Working with Norman Stone was brilliant. Mm-hmm. I've been very, very lucky, um, with the directors I've worked with, Don, you know, Scottish ones, particularly Don Coots, Norman Stone, the, the, they're good fun to work with. They're clever people. They're very good at the job and, and they're nice guys. And so I've always really enjoyed the process of, yeah. of working with them. And, uh, just, sorry, just jumping in there, I suppose. Is there, is there that sort of collaborative thing with the director when you actually discuss the story and maybe change it after discussing it with them and stuff like that? It absolutely. I mean, it depends on the director and it depends who the director is. So with Don and um, Norman Stone, they were both Scotland based. Um, and so we met up regularly and so on. If you're working with somebody maybe who works in London or who works in New York or who works whatever, and you can't get together that often, mm-hmm. um, it becomes less collaborative just because you can't get together all that often to do it. And, and different directors like to work in different ways. Some directors like to get the script, t- talk to you about it, and then go off and do their thing. And that's fine as well because mm-hmm. um, they have to bring their own aesthetic to it and their own, you know, skills. And then is, is your true interest a kind of, horror genre is that what you're really interested in because both the lodge and the caller were both that kind of genre i've got I, i'm funny because i've got two separate sort of uh, strings to my bow one is horror which i really enjoy horror psychological thrillers that kind of thing and the other is children's um because i've also i've got a, a film coming out uh, this year called princess emmy and her horses which is a <laughs> movie about a, a wee princess a wee 
princess who can talk to horses. And it's based on a lovely set of uh, books in Germany. Prinzessin Emmy und ihre Pferde. <laughs> Very good German. Prinzessin Emmy und ihre Pferde. Is that right? Do you know German? Uh, well, it sounded convincing to <laughs> me. It does sound, yeah. Just going to sound convincing. But, but I, that, you know, so, and so I, I do a lot of, you know, on Katie Morag as well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I always think it's kind of weird when you look, if I look at myself on IMDb, which occasionally I do, uh, if you look at yourself on IMDb and I see that half of them are, you know, these horrible horror films <laughs> and the other half are really nice films about you know children skipping gaily through the through the, the valley you know it's a, it's a weird it's a weird split but those are my those are my two professional interests so a children's tv drama film and on the other side horror and uh, psychological thrillers and with the caller um how, how did that come about how was that was that your first horror script that, that was going I, for that was my first horror feature because I'd done so I'd done Rose, which was a short, and then uh, I, the, the central conceit in Rose is that is that one day there's this young woman and her phone rings and she picks it up and it's a uh, well it's a wrong number but it turns out that the person is phoning from thirty years ago, um, and I, I remember being intrigued by that as an idea. You know, imagine if that happened in you know in real yeah. life, uh-huh. and so I'd written a short film based on that uh, uh, conceit. But I always thought there was more to it. I always thought I could stretch it out to a feature. And, you know, years and years and years passed. Um, but eventually I, 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 um, I got a, a screenplay together and it got picked up. And, um, and yeah, yeah, it just, again, it happened quite, once it started, it happened quite quickly. It was originally said, it was originally meant to be set in Glasgow, in fact, and nobody was interested. And then I did a find and replace and I changed Glasgow to New York. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, and changed a few words, you know, uh, rubbish to garbage and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then people were interested when I changed it all to New York. And then the, um, um, the, they, they decided to send the director over to Puerto Rico to see if, uh, if San Juan could stand in for New York. Right. And, um, and he went and said, well, yeah, it could stand in for New York, but why, why bother? Because, you know, why not just set it in San Juan? There's a very interesting cultural mix in Puerto Rico because it's, it's, it's American without being American. You yeah. know, it's about a strange relationship with the USA mm-hmm. and, and parts of it are very, very American and other parts are very sort of, uh, uh, Latin American and it's got, you know, religious undercurrents. Uh, uh, there's a religious movement called, I think, Santeria, which is a mixture of, you know, sort of Catholic, and African and um, Native American traditions. And it's a spooky kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. And there's also an awful lot of uh, white American Anglo-Saxon types. And I wanted my, my lead to be a sort of Anglo-Saxon type. That was the way I, I pictured her. But there's like a big naval base. And so there's an awful lot of, uh, of, of these people there. And you had, so you had a strange cultural mix as well, which added a lot to the texture of the film. Yeah. Uh, and so we ended up shooting it in Puerto Rico. Wow. And, and then, so you you written the script for the caller, and how was it that you then got that out there? What was what was your what did you have to get an agent or yeah? Oh, I already I think, but I'd had an agent right from more or less not right from the start, but pretty pretty soon after writing uh, the original short film Rose, um, I was I was at the BBC and I was looking for an agent. I've been turned down by a few, and I spoke to a producer there who said that she knew this chap Nigel Britton who was uh, interested in, in looking at Scottish writers and did I have anything I could show him. I think it was Rose that I sent him and he got back to me and he said he really liked it, could we meet? And we're talking 25 years ago and he was my first agent and I'm still with him 
today. Yeah. Oh, wow. So again, like again, you were talking 20, 25 years ago. I don't know how much harder it is to get an agent nowadays because mm-hmm. I've never, you know, since getting Nigel as my agent, I've always been really happy with him. So I've never looked for another one. So I find it hard to give advice to young writers because, you know, I'm talking about 1996, 1997. Yeah. Who knows what the, what, the, what the climate's like now? And the caller... It did quite well, is that fair to say? But it didn't quite, it didn't seem to quite land as yeah, big as it could it, have done. No, it didn't, you know, it didn't make me rich and famous. Well, nothing, <laughs> nothing's made me rich and famous yet. <laughs> it got some, it, it's funny, I think among horror fans, it was, it was quite liked. Mm-hmm. You know, people, people thought it was doing something different. It was a wee bit, um, you know, we were trying to go from an intelligent storyline um, and so on. Sometimes, you know, you, you wonder why some things do really well and other things just do okay. And again, it's a, it's a matter of it's a matter of luck. I know that one thing that really bugged me was um, a film had come out not that long before The Caller. And I'm trying to remember what it was called. I can't. But it used a similar idea. It was that somebody touched via radio. Frequency. Frequency. Dennis the Dennis Quaid movie. Yeah, yeah. So Dennis Quaid movie, Frequency. In which he, his father contacts him through this from the his father's dead, I think, and, and contacts him from twenty years ago through these headphones. Right. I remember people saying that I would ripped it off. I hadn't ripped it off <laughs> because Rose, which was the original, had been written 10, 15 years before Frequency. Yeah. I mean, I'm not claiming that Frequency ripped me off. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all, Your Honor. No, I, you know, obviously they had a short film, but but uh, I think some people thought we'd rip them off and we hadn't. Yeah, we were. There is that strange thing in certainly Hollywood anyway, where there's two ideas seem to get made at the same time of completely randomness and there's no connection really, but yeah. yeah. There's something in the air, there's something in the water, there's something yeah. in... You know, I'm sure actually if you, if you got a social anthropologist to examine, they would find what the original source was for both ideas, but it can be an anniversary, it can be a news item, and then you forget what it was that inspired, yeah. all you know is that five years later somebody's making the same bloody movie as you are. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think 99 times out of 100 is purely coincidence. Yeah. I, I believe that things are, are nicked far less often than people think they are nicked. I think it is a case of, you know, people coming in with the, the same idea at the same time. Uh, so you'd, you'd written the script for The Caller, and when you handed it in and stuff, was it much changed? Did the studio say, we want this change, we want that change, or were they quite happy with it? What, what was the kind of... No, back and forth process. I, I, went, I went down to London, I met director Matthew Parkhill, who had, um, he'd, he'd made, a, a, I think this was his second movie, and yet the film he'd made was, had done really well, it was really cool, he's really, he's got a great eye. And uh, we had a chat through, and he wanted a few changes, so we just sat in his room uh, for a day and went through it and made a bunch of changes. And then I gave it to him for a director's pass because he wanted to write in some of the uh, changes that came about through setting it in Puerto Rico. So there was a, there's a scene, for example, in a, in a fest, in a street festival, mm-hmm. and there were various visual things that he wanted to put in. So he did that, gave it back to me, and we, we to and fro a wee bit. Uh, but when it came to, to the actual film um, being shot, it's, it stayed remarkably close to the original script. You know, a few changes inevitably, mm-hmm. but it stayed remarkably close. And then staying on the horror theme, um, the Lodge has just been uh, or has been shown at uh, festivals and stuff, and seems to be getting pretty rave reviews at the moment. And it's, I mean, it's funny though. Maybe it's a Scottish thing that it's a lot easier to cope with failure than it is with success. Because 
Because some of the reviews have been amazing. I mean, uh-huh. really amazing. And I find myself slightly embarrassed by it. You know, <laughs> you, 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 know I, you can deal with, with people slagging you off. You're used to that. Yeah. But people start saying the best things in sliced bread. You start saying, no, I'm not. You know, <laughs> it's like you feel like you're being set up for a fall. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to not be, you know, too, too worked up about the fact the response has been absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, some of the some of the uh, comments from people who saw it were just, you know, I mean, it's the kind of it's the kind of review I would write for my own film if I if knew it was me writing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to write like, if you get to write your own, um, you know, your, your 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 own reference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and it, fine. You know, it's honestly it's just been so fantastic. So I'm chuffed. But fingers crossed. Let's wait and see. It's not been released uh, to the public yet. You know. But um, if the response from the public is as good as the response from from the overwhelming number of critics, then I'm, I'll be really, really, really chuffed. And, and has it got a distributor and a release yeah. date or anything yet? Yeah, it's got it's got a distributor in the states, um, and they're looking to. I think they're in talks just now about other territories as well. Brilliant, fantastic. Um, is, is it quite odd when you write a film and you watch the scene played out by two people and you know you have it in your head one way and then you're watching it? Do you ever think that's not how that line's meant to be said or you've ruined the pacing abs- or something? Absolutely. From the very fir- from the very first thing I ever made, it was um, talking about Dead Sea Reels. I had Ian Bannon, um, who is a fantastic Oscar-nominated actor, you know, and he was perfect in it. But there was a single word. He had to say, <laughs> and what it was was um, the, the, there's the father of a wee girl who's in a who, whose daughter has died and is depressed, and Ian Bannon turns up as this mysterious priest, and um, and the the dad has to say blah blah blah, old Jesuit trick? Question mark. Another guy says, and Ian Bannon said Dominican. And uh, and it was the way he said. I thought he was saying Dominican. No, it wasn't. It was the guy who was saying old old Jesuit trick. It was a. It was supposed to be a question. Old Jesuit trick? Question mark. Right. And instead he said old Jesuit trick, as if he knew. <laughs> and anyway, it's, we're talking about something that's so tiny. I can't even remember now which way round it was. But I remember at the time thinking, no, it's <laughs> the whole meaning of the entire. Of course, nobody watching even noticed or cared. But I think as the writer, you are exquisitely. Um, aware of every little change. So I, I find now, and I try and do this as a matter of policy, that whenever something has been shot and edited and I'm seeing it for the first time, the first time I want to see it purely by myself, just so I can sit through it, tearing my hair out. Because you cannot tell what you feel about something you've written first time you watch it, because all you're paying attention to is the changes. You ignore everything else. Then you put it to one, then you go back a couple of hours later, the next day, and you watch it again, and you think, wow. You know, they not only have they delivered everything that was in the screenplay, they've improved it because they've brought this and they've brought this sensibility, and they've brought this aesthetic and they've brought this angle. And and so I often, usually, luckily, I find that the second time I watch something that somebody else has directed and, you know, brought their own thing to, I love it. But the first time, I just need to be alone so I can punch the walls and say, <laughs> you killed my babies! <laughs> exactly. And the, looking at the process of actually writing a script, do you have a? Do you sort of bash out a first draft, leave it for a bit, go back to it, or do you sort of read each scene the next day and try and tinker with it then? My my, my process of writing has changed an awful lot since I, since I started. And I, and when I started writing, I mean, I, I I wasn't trained in any way. I read a couple of books, 
But there was no there was no class far less in those days anyway. There weren't easily you know easily accessible classes or or, or, or such. And um, when I started writing, I used to spend a lot of time in front of the laptop or in front of the computer or in front of the typewriter when I started. Um, you know, just staring at the blank page. And nowadays, I do far less of that. Nowadays, there's, there's, there's a saying which I think is, is brilliant, which is um, your first thought isn't always inspiration. Sometimes it's just your first thought. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really hold by that. I find that nowadays I'm, I hold off before starting to write the, the screenplay proper. I, I, I'll happily wait weeks and months just sitting about, walking around, thinking of things, writing down ideas, because... I know that if I give it a little bit of time, I can improve what I've got. So whereas in the, in, in the old days, I might end up writing six drafts of something and improving it with each draft. Now I like to try and enter the process when I've already developed it much more in my own head. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so I, I, I can't, um, give, give enough, attach enough importance to just daydreaming as a writer, just sitting about daydreaming thinking about things, because that's where your ideas come from. You know, um, there's a famous story of the, the Hollywood mogul standing outside a writer's room and being angry because you couldn't hear the, 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 the typewriter clicking. So he thought they weren't working. And I think um, as somebody from my background, the idea that you weren't making a noise, you weren't actually typing meant you weren't working. But of course you're not. The, the typing up bit is the easy bit. It's the coming up with the ideas and then coming up with a better one and then coming up with an even better one. And that's thinking, you know? That's mm-hmm. just sitting quietly or walking through the park. Yeah, totally. Or noting it down in a good notebook, perhaps. Or noting it down. <laughs> if only, the thing I would really love, and the problem is that sometimes it would help if you had a notebook that sort of, shaped and helped helped categorize your thoughts and and just when you need it gave you a certain i don't know nudge in the right direction if such a thing had existed i think it'd be really useful but it's funny you should say that (laughs) have you heard such a thing i I, I, I might be able to send you something (laughs) and do you do you show it to anyone when it's a work in progress do you want to get kind of feedback or do you like to just not show it until it's completely ready I, I, uh, my wife's a novelist and uh, far, far more talented than me. And I use and exploit her to the max. Um, and she's genuinely the best, the best person to talk to because, well, actually, actually, she always says the same thing. I said, I showed her a screenplay and she says, you don't know the characters well enough. So I'll go away and rewrite it and I'll show it to her and she'll read it and she'll say, yeah, you don't know the characters well enough. And so I'll go away and rewrite it. And when she eventually stops saying you don't know the characters well enough, then it's ready to show. Mm-hmm. Because my, my problem is, and I think this is something that I am overcoming as a writer, but it was certainly a big issue with my early stuff. I uh, I sort of treated my characters as um, puppets who were, who were to act out the story I had yeah. in my head. You know, and, and, that, and you can write a pretty good, show like that but actually if you know the characters if the characters are actually driving the story authentically and if you know their back that just adds a certain richness and believability and authenticity which elevates it and i was always i was always i couldn't be bothered learning about my characters i just wanted them to do what i told them to do sorry sorry i was just going to say i wonder if that's a difference in the form isn't it because if you're writing a novel you 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 know you have to get inside the character's head more to, to advance the story. You can't just show the, uh, well, I know they always say show, not tell, but you know, you, you have to, 
yeah. spend more time with the characters perhaps than you do in a, in, a, in a screenplay you have to get it across very quickly what yes. is happening well that's what I always thought I always thought well you know I'm not inside the characters heads why do I have to know you know where they went to school if it's not relevant but what I learned and what, and what she taught me was that how the character behaves it's that thing about you know um, uh, character determines action action reveals character mm-hmm. if you want your character to do something you have to think, why have they made that choice? Or you have to know why they've made that choice. And if there's an element of randomness, they're making the choice because it suits my plot, then the audience doesn't doesn't necessarily pick up on that directly. They don't think, hmm, that was a very unmotivated thing for that protagonist to do. They don't think that. But actually, they come away with a feeling of, yeah, the film was okay, but it didn't really, you know, it didn't punch them in the guts. If you want to punch somebody in the guts, then what happens has to be really motivated by the way a character is. And um, and the more you do that, the better your work is. And I, and I did learn that from her. Um, mm-hmm. She's she's been tremendously useful from that point of view. And having having living with a writer, man, it's the best thing because writers have weird lives. That thing about lying on the couch for a couple of hours and uh, RuPaul is on in the background. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And you're eating crisps at two in the afternoon. Now, some people might not think that's work. In actual, <laughs> in actual fact, that could be the most productive two hours of your day because you're thinking, you know, you're half watching RuPaul, but the other half is thinking about some plot or character point and, and you're working through it semi-consciously and you can solve a major problem in that two hours lying on the couch watching telly eating crisps. Some people wouldn't understand that because my wife's a writer and because I've often found her lying on the couch eating crisps watching <laughs> And then rushing off to write a chapter. I understand her. She understands me. Yeah. Some people wouldn't understand. No, absolutely, yeah. But if you want to be a writer, marry a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the one question I've got is, you've already said, you know, you don't necessarily stand by the write what you, what you know type of thing. Is there any other rules that you do think are quite important for, like, a writer to, to follow? Not only do I, 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 when I saw your question, I wrote a couple down. Oh, fantastic. I wrote a couple down. I may have already mentioned them all. Um, have you ever read a book called um, Save the Cat by yes. Blake Snyder? Uh, yeah. I remember reading that, and, and the source, to me, the central um, idea there, he gives an example of a, of a film. Imagine a film which ends up in outer space with a sort of Star Wars Battlestar Galactica shootout that costs five million bucks to film, right? So this is the film, but it starts off with our hero walking down the street and he hears meow, meow, meow. And he looks up and there's a cat stuck in a tree. And he's late for work. And, you know, but you know what? He can't leave the wee kitty there. So he pulls off his jacket, climbs the tree, cuts himself, gets torn, grabs the cat, half falls down, saves it, and, you know, walks on his merry way. And the film is ready to, to for the final cut, final edit. And they need to chop out three minutes. And there's only, there's only two places where they can chop it out. They can either chop out a three-minute battle in space, which cost five million bucks to film, or they can chop out the three minutes when he saves the cat, which cost £2.50 in a Kit Kat. And, and so it's almost inevitable they're going to cut out the thing that was cheap and easy to film. And he says, Michael Snyder, Blake Snyder, sorry, says, that's a disastrous thing to do because the three minutes when he's climbing a tree and saving the cat establishes him as a character, draws the audience in, makes the audience empathise with him, root for him, care about him, so that when he's having the fight in space, you give a damn. If you if you don't 
hard and saving the cat. If you drop that, doesn't matter how many millions you spend in Battlestar Galactica up, up in the heavens, the audience won't care. And and so and so that's a that's a really important rule, which is that setting up your character, making your audience root for them, care about them, identify, engage with them. That's one of the single most important things you can do. And if you've got that right, if you've made them care about the audience, care about the character, the protagonist in the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you've really taken a great step towards writing a compelling film. So save the cat. That's one of my, that's one of the lessons, I think. Another one was, um, well, I think I've mentioned them all. There was write what you know about versus write what you care about. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, and the other one was I mentioned that sometimes your first idea is not inspiration; it's just your first idea. Mm-hmm. So if you if you follow those three rules, you'll write a fantastic movie. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, thank you very my much. My daughter. It's funny actually. My my daughter when she was five, she's more of a film buff than I've ever been. She she understood film better than I did when she was five, and she used to watch a lot of romantic comedies when she was a wee girl, and she had rules about what made a successful film, so much so that she wrote them down in her childish you know, handwriting and stuck it to the TV, and all films had to have a wedding and a happy honeymoon, and the, and the uh, groom could not have a beard. And those were three <laughs> rules. It had to be a romantic comedy with a wedding and with a leading man who didn't have a beard. Again, I think that is a recipe for success. <laughs> that's pre-hipster times, though. Beards yeah, are now that's essential. True, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think I think actually it applies even more nowadays. <laughs> now that the hipsters have descended upon us. <laughs> and is have you ha- ever had any desire to sort of write anything other than screenplays? Have you ever thought of oh, a novel might be something? Yeah, and, yeah, and I'll tell you why. Because seeing that my wife has you know done mm. so well as a novelist. And seeing all the adoration that novelists get, <laughs> they, people love you if you're a novelist. <laughs> you are, honestly, they treat you so well and so nicely. And and see when you're a screenwriter, I mean, unless you're like you know William Goldman or somebody, mm. but see when you're a screenwriter, you're somewhere between the office junior and the used tea bags. <laughs> You don't get much glory. The money can be really good. Uh-huh. The money can be really good, and you can work with some brilliant people. But in terms of status and adoration, you don't get much. And so I always thought I'd love to write a novel. But whenever I've sat down to write a novel, I grind to a halt after about half a page. And I don't know why. When, when I write, when I'm screenwriting, I find it very easy, you know, to either have my own voice or enter somebody else's head. It's never been a problem. But when I and when I read books, I tend to read books which are very simply written. You know, I don't like very dense prose. But when I sit down to write prose, which I've done a couple of times, I end up writing like, or trying to write like James Joyce. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about somebody, I cannot read a page of James Joyce. I never really understand it. You know, it's not that I'm Joycean. It's that I've got this thing in my head that as a, as a prose writer, you have to, you know, every letter has to be beautifully crafted. Um, there's a story about Joyce. Apparently, one day he was lying in his room and his agent came by and said, James, what's wrong? And James said, oh, today's been a disaster. He goes, why? He goes, I've, how many words have you written? He goes, seven. He goes, seven? That's quite good for you, James. He goes, yes, but what order? What order? <laughs> and, and that's it. So I, I, I grind to a halt when I try and write prose. I try and become this person who I'm not this arty-farty person, yeah. and I, I don't seem to be able to break through that. But one day, my dream is that I will write a best-selling novel and I will be treated with, you know, glory. <laughs> <laughs> and then, 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 then Ellington adapted it into a screenplay. 
Sorry? You can swap roles. Helen could adapt it into a screenplay then. She's it. written tons of screenplays. Oh, She's a better screenplay than I am as well. There you go. <laughs> Just generally all round. But I got her, so keep your hands off. <laughs> I, get, I get to use all those brains for my... Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm crawling along in her coattails shamelessly. <laughs> so you've got Princess Amy... I would try to say it in German coming out. Um, yeah. What What else is in the pipeline? Uh, in the pipeline, I've got um, Princess Emmy. I've, I'm working on a new, uh, a sort of ghost story set during World War Two. In, fa- in fact, set in the internment camps on the Isle of Man. Right. You know, the, the uh, Germans, Italians, mm-hmm. a lot of people were interned in the Isle of Man during World War Two, and I've had this idea for a ghost story, which I've, it's it's, been, it's one of those ideas I've been churning around in my head literally for for 15 years mm-hmm. um, but I've just now I think finally semi-cracked it so I'm working on that as my next uh, horror film and I've got a idea for a children's series that I'm working on as well so it's so really busy at the moment yeah Brilliant. and I've got a UFO film I've, I've written a screenplay about um, a UFO incident that happened in the 80s uh, I'm doing that with uh, Scottish producer Peter Braun okay Roy um, and so that's also bubbling away under the surface at the moment. So quite is, that, is that horror tinged as well, or is it no, more sci-fi? No, well, well, it's actually based on a, on a true story, so okay. and we've, we've stuck to the facts more or less. Okay. So it's not supernatural horror, put it that way. It's got elements of of thrill in it. Excellent, fantastic. Sounds like you've got a lot a lot on the go then at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, being being busy is a lot better than not being busy. Yeah, absolutely. And I've done both. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that is that's the sort of broad swathe of what we were going to ask about. But we like to finish off the podcast with a few quick fire alternative questions. So you have to give us the first first answer that pops into your head and. Since it's you and since it's me asking this, I think I can get away with this. Pizza or pasta? Pasta. Okay. <laughs> uh, but actually, half and half. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a cheating answer. I'm afraid we can't accept. But there's some restaurants do that. You can have half pizza and pasta, or yeah. else if I'm going out with my wife, one of us might order pizza and one of us might order pasta. And we might share a bit. Pizza <laughs> passes very very well together. Because um, pizza's not a meal on its own. Pizza's not a, <laughs> pizza's not a full meal. It's, 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 it's more than a snack, less than a meal. Uh, so it, it, it complements a plate of pasta. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, have, I have ordered a pasta starter followed by a pizza before, although my mum always disapproves of that if I, if I attempt to do that. But I hope that when you order your pasta starter, you say you can have pasta starter, but you make it a full portion. Oh, yeah. No, don't worry. Because no otherwise, what's the point? Exactly. See the portions. I mean, I don't want to get racist here, right? But Anglo-Saxon portions of pasta... That is what is left at the bottom of the pot that I scrape up. Just <laughs> That's not a meal. You see 500 grams of pasta and it says serves like 27 or yeah, something. Yeah, no, exactly. Since when? <laughs> but anyway, pasta, not pizza. Excellent. Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. Excellent. Didn't like Star Wars. Even when I first saw it, 1976 it came out or 77. I was 13 or something. Mm-hmm. I went with a pal to watch it and afterwards I thought what was all the fuss about and I didn't like it then I'm not like any of the other ones ah, don't care interesting do not like them uh, not enough saving of cats you see <laughs> too, much, too many explosions up in space not enough cats being saved 
That's right. Okay, well, sense. no, yeah, Star Trek definitely has a lot of cats, yeah. more characters. I'm not sure about the cats. <laughs> Tribbles, maybe. Um, real book or e-book? E-book. Okay. Used to like real books, but I find that I like e-books because you can make the print bigger. And as I have, <laughs> I'm now I'm now closer to forty than I am thirty. <laughs> well, I am. And uh, I find that I find that print and books, it's like they make it so small because they think it's cool to make. It. I don't know why. Anyway, I hate. I, I don't like this. I like bigger prints. So with an ebook, you can make it bigger if you want. Uh, TV or cinema? TV. Why is Cine- Why would anybody go to the cinema anymore? <laughs> why would you go to the cinema? You pay ten quid. They put you as often as not in a tiny wee box. With people grunting and talking and people <laughs> around you, and the screen isn't that much bigger than the screen at home. I mean, it used to be you went to the cinema; it was like a beautiful theatrical experience. They had curtains that opened, they had ushers and usherettes. That you know, it was a kind of luxurious sense of occasion. And now it's horrible. Uh, I'm not. I would, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I miss good cinema experiences, but I've almost given up now. Yeah, last one. Um... Fancy restaurant or takeaway? Ooh. Ooh, I've got to choose, do I? Yep. Ooh. Oh, I like both. I'm going to go for a takeaway. Because you can lie on your couch and watch telly. And have RuPaul. Have RuPaul. <laughs> and have RuPaul. Actually, it's not me that loves RuPaul, it's my daughter. But she sure, kind of sure. Well, okay. I mean, you know. Right, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. It sounds like protesting too much. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, just because just you can, you know, if there was a fancy restaurant with a screen and a couch that you could lie on while you ate, <laughs> but, but until they have such a thing, then take away. Well, I really enjoyed that chat with Sergio. Mm. It, it was really good catching up with him. He had some interesting anecdotes. Yeah, just don't get him to do any internet searches for you. Yeah, best keep him away from the internet <laughs> with the sound of things. Um, I should also say that we looked up the BAFTA records and found out that he lost out to Emily Young for Kiss of Life for the BAFTA Best Newcomer in 2003. So not to rub the salt into the wound there, Sergio, but, <laughs> but that's who it was that beat you. Sergio also mentioned his wife, Helen, there. That's Helen Fitzgerald, who is the author of many books, including The Cry, which was recently adapted for the BBC. Uh, We're actually lucky enough to be speaking to Helen in a few weeks, so uh, we're looking forward to that, and please do tune in for that one. Next week we have Adrian Walker, uh, author of End of the the World Running Club, a book that uh, we both read and really enjoyed. Uh, We spoke about it briefly a few episodes ago. He's on next week. It was a great chat with him, really interesting stuff. Uh, And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can send us a tweet to at right underscore gear. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. And you can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk if you have any questions you'd like us to answer. But don't send us any questions for upcoming authors because we've already recorded them. So (laughs) it'll be a bit difficult for us to ask them. Um, But in the meantime, just to say thanks to Simon Stokes, as always, for his production assistance. And we'll leave you now with a bit more info about the Page One Notebook, which, as we say, has now launched on Kickstarter. So please do check that out. See you next week. See you later. The Blank Page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? 
Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. We've created three editions of page one, standard, premium, and exclusive Kickstarter edition. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one.